Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. Today, we have a great show. Our guest is the founder of Patient Capital Management and a co-portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners. In today's episode, our guest shares how sending a resume to someone by the name of Bill Miller led to her starting as an analyst under him 20 years ago. We hear how the firm defines value and growth and thinks about its edge in the investment process. Then our guest walks us through some of the names in her portfolio and the thesis behind them, including ADT, Stitch Fix, GM, and even some SPACs. As we wind down, we go back in time and have our guests walk through what was going on in her mind as they navigated 2020, the pandemic, and the lessons learned from that experience. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Patient Capital Management and Miller Value Partners, Samantha McLemore. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Where do we find you today? I am right outside of Baltimore at home. I miss the East Coast. It was just there, South Carolina, North Carolina. And I had a tweet the other day where I said, everyone's super worried about inflation, inflation happening. And I showed a photo from a bar in South Carolina where the beers were still $2 and wine was 4 So now, no comment on the quality of the wine, but... I said there's no inflation here, but the place was also packed, so who knows. Sounds like a good trip. (laughs) We're going to talk about all things stocks and investing today, but you have one of the cooler origin stories with getting started that I'm sure you've told many times, but I think it's really instructive, and particularly for the younger crowd, who's always nervous to ask or to sit down, but tell us uh, uh, how you met Bill. I won the job lottery. I got really lucky. And so I went to Washington Lee University, which is where Bill went. And I graduated right after the tech bubble burst in the early 2000s. And I thought I was going to go into investment banking. And they were big recruiters at my school. And everyone said, you know, you can't get a job in investment management. They just, it's impossible. So don't even try. Bill happened to come back to speak the fall of my senior year. And he you know, gave a presentation. He intended some investment club. I was in the investment club. We managed some of the endowment. So he attended some presentations. I met him and I ended up asking him if I could send him my resume. And so you know, lo and behold, I got a job offer and joined him right out of college. So I love to tell new undergrads, just try. Time and time again, I've heard People say, this is impossible. It can't happen. You know, you lose nothing from trying and sometimes you get really lucky. So I thought I'd be there. You know, I I had my whole life planned out at that time and I thought I'd be there two and a half years and go get my MBA. And lo and behold, I am still working with Bill 20 years later. You know, it's funny. I mean, I went to school right down the road from you and you're a little bit younger than I am. Similar story, but it's so interesting. And fast forward now to our company probably, and I'm not exaggerating, 90%, if not all of the employees, I'm trying to think, including a couple we're getting ready to hire, have been this sort of opting in, reaching out to where it got to the point almost where you just couldn't not hire that person and say, hey, look, I've been following you. Here's what we're going to do. And then like ignore them and they keep emailing and keep sending stuff. And eventually I'm like, this is so good. I can't not hire you. But so many people are scared to kind of 
do that for the fear of rejection or fear of the opposite side of that is just the, hey, here's a resume. And then, you know, that's never going to get you. And then it just falls off. Yeah. I mean, follow up, follow up a lot. Do not take it to heart if you don't hear back or if you don't hear back a lot. Opportunities might pop up. And if someone thinks of you because you've been sending a lot of your stuff, I agree with you 100%, Meb. Great example. And love him or hate him. Jim Cramer had this article many, many years ago on the street that um, had a big impression on me. And he was like, look, here's how to get a hedge fund job. And he's like, show up at the office at five in the morning or whatever time people show up. I'm West Coast, so maybe be earlier with a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. Now today that may be, I don't know, green shakes or coffee or whatever. And just like relentlessly be like, what can I do? How can I be of service value for free? And I thought that was such a accurate, thoughtful idea, just like this work hard. We had Mario Gabelli on the show and he's like, we work from five to nine here, not nine to five, five to nine. Anyway. (laughs) And the hardest thing is getting your foot in the door. So whatever you can do to make that happen and being of service and being there is important. Yeah. The last one I'm going to mention is that like the Theo Epstein of the Cubs was talking about like, go to your superior, in this case, go to a job that you want and be like, what is the 20% of your job that you hate? that I can take over. And it's like a triple win because you take things off your boss's plate that they hate doing. You learn their job and you also get like involved in the whole project. Anyway, we could do a whole show on how to get a job in investment management. <laughs> and that fits so well philosophically with, with how we think. And, you know, I was definitely trained by Bill and we used to have to listen to these tapes and it was literally cassette tapes. And we would listen to hours of these things, like over 12 hours. And it was all about how to take work from your boss and take monkeys off your boss's back and do them and how you add value that way. And I think it is definitely a way to be successful. And I think a lot of people could get what they wanted more if they started thinking more like that. Now, the takeaway listeners is for not all 100,000 of you to go show up at Sam's door tomorrow because she's working from home. So, or mowing her lawn or anything, go to the office, email her. All right. So you guys started working together fast forward over a decade later. Give us a sort of um, landscape of what you guys are up to today. What's going on? Yeah, it's really exciting times. One of the things I love about markets is it's always changing. It's always dynamic. It's always learning. Obviously, There's a lot going on in today's market. We've been through this period with record issuances. If you look at a year ago or a little over a year ago, you know, we had the COVID crash, which was the fastest 35% decline in history. And so those sort of periods of volatility create a lot of opportunities. We tend to be more active during that time. And now we've had a huge rally that I think has surprised really a lot of people. And a lot of people are wondering how much more is left. We still find a lot of opportunities. We still, we're value managers. So we've been through a period that was a little rough on value managers, but now it's value names have done better. And we think that that's likely to endure. So we're definitely busy. There's a lot going on every day. So we'll get into some themes and names in a little bit and process. But while we're on the kind of investment landscape, I know you love a particularly accurate Templeton quote. You want to give us where do you think we are in that four part? Because <laughs> I have a, I have input on where I think we are. Where, where do you yeah. think we are right now? 2021. Yeah. So my favorite quote, we use it all the time. I mean, whenever we're talking about the markets, Sir John Templeton said, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism and die on euphoria. So we do talk a lot about where are we now? And obviously you can't be that precise. I think the interesting thing is from the lows of the financial crisis, obviously we're in a really pessimistic period for a long time. And I think we remained in an environment of skepticism for almost the duration of 10 years, which is pretty unusual. And now I think we've moved more into optimism. And I would say overall, we're in optimism with pockets of euphoria. So there are pockets of the market where I think there's a lot of speculation and and valuations are really high, a lot of optimism. But there's a lot of areas of the market that I don't think are like that. So I would say overall optimism. But I'm interested in your view. What do you think? I definitely think we're in pockets of euphoria, but I'm also not certain that it's like the end stage of the euphoria. You know, we're at all-time highs in, in many markets. 
I was tweeting today because I got an Instagram ad. And meanwhile, I buy like 90% of the Instagram ads I see. I've never clicked on a Google ad in my life, but Instagram guaranteed 12% returns. And I said, my goodness, there was an Atixis study that came out recently that said that investors expect 17% returns. So getting a little, whether that's optimism or euphoria, pick your, pick your word. 17. Pretty good, right? 17% real. Real. Phenomenal. 17% real. (laughs) I hope they're right. You know, (laughs) the odds are very low, but maybe for the next year, possible. So, okay. Tell us a little bit about your framework. You mentioned value. What does that mean to you guys? How do you guys look at picking investments? How do you build a portfolio? Let's dig in. So we are long-term value investors. We talk about taking both of those terms seriously. So we really are trying to value businesses and understand the underlying fundamentals and we're investing for the long term. And I think we think carefully about why we might have an edge in the market. We might get into that more, what the market's getting wrong. The market's really, really tough to beat. And so whenever we're making an investment, we're trying to understand why is the market getting this wrong? And there are a number of things that tend to lead or are more likely to lead to market mistakes. But We're doing a lot of work on the fundamentals of companies and everything that goes into what drives an underlying business value, you know, whether it's capital allocation and competitive strategy and competitive landscape and returns on capital, all those sorts of things. And then we're importantly, and I think this is where we might differ from a number of other fundamental managers, is we're also spending a lot of time trying to understand the expectations baked into market prices, because obviously... The higher those expectations are, the more difficult it is to exceed them. And so we're looking for big disconnects between what the expectations baked into the market versus the fundamentals of stocks. So we tend to be contrarian. We like entering things after big down moves in the price because we know that stock prices can move more than underlying fundamental business values. And so that those are that's an area that's ripe for maybe the market to make a mistake. And so I would say that's sort of the core of our approach. And then we have a lot of flexibility to go where we see the best values. And so we're value managers, but we've always had a portion of the portfolio in names that we call secularly mispriced, names that can drive value by compounding over long periods of time. Many people consider those growth names. Those names can be mispriced as well. And so value is the lens through which we view the world, but we look at a wide variety of sorts of opportunities through that valuation lens. Talk to me a little bit about how you guys broadly structure the portfolio. How many names are you guys doing shorting to? I know you do some derivatives. We consider ourselves to be concentrated managers. We tend to have between 20 and 50 names in the portfolio, but there's more concentration sort of at the top end. The largest weights in the portfolio can be, you know, 30 to 50% of the portfolio. So there's a lot of concentration up there. We tend to be mostly long only. We do have the flexibility to short, but it's not really a core part of what we do. And then when we're doing our analysis, we're looking at if we think if we're doing work on a company, if we're doing work on Tesla, if we think it's attractive, we'll look at the best way to make the quote unquote bet. So we'll look at the equity, we'll look at up and down capital structure, the debt, the converts, we'll look at options. We don't do a whole lot in derivatives, we are active on long-term call options, you know, where we have a high degree of conviction in our view and where there's a, a really attractive skew. So if we're right on the stock, you can make, and it's up, call it 50 to 100%, you can make four to five times in the options. Typically, you don't make that much, you make two to three times as much money. So when those things get out of whack, we will consider something on the option side. I know this is like, Question number one, institutions, you're probably exhausted answering it. But when people love talking to stock pickers or hedge funds or investment managers, they love saying, what's your edge? You know, there's 10,000 funds out there. Sam, what gives you the right magnifying glass, microscope, telescope, whatever it may be? What's y'all's edge? We don't get sick of talking about that. We like that question because I do think it's so important to think about it. It's so difficult to beat the market. And so we want to be thinking about it. We want to be crisp and clear on what is our edge. And so 
We think the market's a complex adaptive system. It's pragmatically efficient, which means it's mostly right most of the time. And it's very difficult to be, but it does have breakdowns. And so we think that there are three edges one can have in the market. And those are informational edges. So you know something others don't know. That's mostly illegal with Reg FD. We And especially in this day and age where there's so much information and it's priced instantaneously with, with algorithmic trading. And so we don't really try to compete there. We just try to not be at a disadvantage there. And then the two areas where we compete more are analytical edge. So you don't know anything, but it's classic mosaic theory. You put the information together differently or you weight information differently to come up with a different answer. But really the last one is where we, I think, develop most of our edges, which is behavioral edges. So we know that big groups of people have the tendency to behave similar ways over time. So this relates back to the Templeton quote, extremes and fear and greed. We have behavioral pitfalls that we all individually make. We try to be students of behavioral finance and ways that might manifest in the market. We know that in certain times, the market's less likely to be right. So spinoffs where there's not a lot of great information, new business models where they're not well understood. So those are all areas. And then, you know, again, I mentioned it earlier, time arbitrage. So the market has increasingly become shorter and shorter term time horizon with people aiming for the next month and quarter and really consistent returns. We're willing to withstand more volatility in the pursuit of higher longer term returns. And we're willing to be patient and focus on call it five years rather than the next month or quarter. Those are all areas where we think we can get an edge versus the market. Five years, my goodness, that's a lifetime for uh, this day and age. We talk a lot about that, though, on the show. We say investors ask us how long they should give a strategy, and I used to say 10 years, and now I say 20. Now, no one, like, they kind of laugh awkwardly, and but I'm, I'm serious in sort of that response, but it applies to holdings, too. Some of these big compounders, you want a 100-bagger, well, you may hope it's going to come in a year, but in reality, it's probably a decade-plus. I love reading y'all's writing. You have a refreshingly candid writing style. And one of your quotes, when you were talking about sort of investment opportunities, everything else going on, I love you kind of sprinkle in different quotes, but you were talking about the adaptive markets. By the way, can I get an invite to the Santa Fe one of these days? I've never been. Oh, yes. You should totally go. It's amazing. They, they do amazing work. Cool. I'm going to hold you to it. But all right. So one of your quotes is you said, we really love the current portfolio. I love that statement. You said it trades at a pretty steep discount to the overall market. Talk to us a little bit about some of the themes in there. What do you really love that's in there here in uh, summer 2021? My passion and what I love. And when you have these big drawdowns, it's harder for, I think, folks who are one step removed. And if you can get in with the companies and really get confidence in their underlying fundamental business values, it makes that volatility easier to handle. And so again, when I just talk to my companies and go through what they're doing and what I think the value is, it does make me really excited. I do love the portfolio. There's lots of names to talk about. Our biggest name right now is ADT. I think ADT is really attractive, really interesting, particularly right now. ADT, you know, is the home security company. And they were taken private by Apollo a, few, a number of years ago and then came back public, I think it was in 2018. They've been public a couple of years. And the stock really hasn't done much. They tried to bring it public at $18 a share. They weren't able to do that. It came lower and then it traded, you know, maybe 16 and it traded down, hit $4 a share in the depths of the crisis last year. Now it's back up to 1077 right now as we speak, but we think this company is worth 18. I think that it's really misunderstood. One of the areas of the market that's struggled a lot is anything that's in sort of secular decline or feared to be in secular decline. And so as there's been a number of new competitors that sell home security equipment, these video doorbells, video cameras, and that sort of thing. The perception is that ADT is at secular risk. And I do think it's a perception. I don't think it's a reality. I think it's one of the things that's creating an opportunity. It's been really hard for the market 
to see that. So first of all, they have a great team here. Jim DeVries is the CEO. They had to fix a number of things within the business to improve retention and improve how they operate. They've done that and they're just now embarking on more growth. But even in this sort of environment, they sold their Canada business. They did an acquisition that had some messy accounting stuff. So you can't really see the underlying fundamentals of the business just in the big overall numbers. So people just say it's too much work. I'm not dealing with it. But if we look forward, so they had a couple of things that I think are really exciting in terms of driving the future results. One, they were a big leader in the commercial space back in the day as part of Tyco. They exited that. They re-entered it a number of years ago. They're doing really well. That market was hit last year, but I think they have a great competitive position. I think they're going to be able to drive double-digit growth there. And then in the core residential business, there too, they now have whole product line, including equipment. People want a do-it-yourself solution, but that really is a, a separate market that's growing the overall market, not eating into the monitored security business. And then Google, maybe most importantly, they just entered into a partnership with Google late last year, the Nest division. And so they're going to come out with a fully integrated smart home line with Nest later this year. And they're working on all the product integration now. And I think that that's really exciting and that can really help drive growth. And so next year, I think you're going to really see it and you're going to see double digit top line and and even better bottom line growth here. And I think it's going to change the overall perception of the company. And it's, again, it's really quite cheap if we look at what we expect for free cash flow next year. It's trading at about a 9% free cash flow yield. And again, we expect that to be able to grow double digits. That might get someone to the, you know, high teens compound rate. So ADT is a name that we think is really attractive in here. I like it. A big cash flow generator, you know, in this sort of market, I mean, in any market, cash flow kind of rules everything. And this company, $5 billion plus in revenue, is certainly one that's gushing a bit. I know you guys also like some of the, I don't know if you still hold them or not, but I saw you writing about them. Some of these consignment sort of stitch fix subscription sort of models. Talk to us about those because there's nothing I love more on the planet than subscription boxes. Tell us about some of those names, that thesis. We own Stitch Fix. We've been holders of Stitch Fix since the IPO. And so I think that's a great team there. That company has been extremely misunderstood. I think it came at $15 a share and, and today it's at 62. Bill Gurley is a member of the board there and he's venture capitalist, one of the top venture capitalists in the world. One of our joint friends has told us that Bill's only recommended three stocks to him in his life and it was Amazon, Dell and Stitch Fix. So that's good company. That's good company to be in. People really misunderstood and, and the IPO was a little bit disappointing to the company. People really misunderstood this because it's somewhat like a subscription, but it's a little bit different. And so customers will sometimes they'll need to refresh their closets and then they won't. And so it'll look like churn, but then they reactivate a while later. Anyways, I think that that's why this company has never gotten, unlike many of the growth names we talked about, it's never gotten to some nosebleed areas. And they've been consistently cash generative and able to self-fund and earn a profit. And even now trades at three times revenues. And they're going through this exciting transition. So over the past number of years, since it was launched, it was just purely this box, this monthly box where they're really good. And they talk about personalization and understanding. They have data, they have algorithms, they're predicting what you like, what fix fits you. Katrina says she always wondered when she went to a store, why does it make sense to shop for jeans this way, to try in a bunch of jeans, to search through racks? And wouldn't it make a lot more sense if I just had a pair of jeans and it was delivered to me and it was what I wanted? And they've really invested a lot in AI and machine learning and personalization. And again, they're just now expanding out to make their offering available outside of the core monthly fixes so that if you assert and you want a pair of jeans, you can actually purchase from Stitch Fix. And that is just happening now. You haven't even seen that in the business. And that obviously really opens up the total addressable market for the company because that's how most people shop. Most people don't do 
the monthly sort of fixes. So again, there's a huge apparel market and this company is still relatively small. They've innovated a ton in the past year and you can see that in the overall numbers. And so this is sort of a classic compounder. If the business is being managed well and they're executing on the market opportunity, I still think it has significant upside. Is the same thesis for the real real in that same sort of genre or is that a totally different concept? Yeah, I mean, we ended up with a number of these e-commerce plays, not because we thought from a top-down perspective, let's go look here. We just, we bought each of them on weakness. So as I talked about, you know, when the market price breaks down and we can make a clear case that there's a disconnect between fundamentals and expectations. So we bought the real, real in March of last year was when we initially purchased it in one of our funds. And so we've been following it. Analyst Christy Siegel, who works with me, who's wonderful. She's followed this space for a long time. We had bought Farfetch late last year after doing a lot of work. We had followed the Real Real and Farfetch since their IPOs. And the Real Real was trading at close to 30 bucks a share entering the year, entering 2020, and it hit five in COVID. And at that point, we just thought this environment might be really bad. And it is really bad for a lot of companies. And there might be an impact on real, real because their supply was really hindered, but they had adequate capital on the balance sheet. And there is this movement, the real, real focuses on consignment. There's a lot of focus now on the circular economy and how beneficial that is for the overall environment. And so there is a tailwind there. They've done a great job growing this business. So when we bought it, we initially thought, you know, it was worth 30 bucks a share. And so we thought that there was significant upside. And then as things have evolved, we've continued to believe that they're now starting to get that supply back and growth is really accelerating, recovering from last year. Again, I think here people have a question about the economic, the long-term fundamental economic business model, which makes the market expectations lower. So again, it's not one of these growth companies that has a really high valuation. And we have a lot of confidence that they can reach their long-term target margins and that will gradually make progress towards that going forward. And again, their market is growing. They're growing a lot and taking share within their market. They have a good team here. And so we continue to think that here at 20, it's, it's attractive. And now our, you know, our estimate of what it's worth has come up a little bit. And so we think it's worth roughly $35 a share. I got an idea for you for this and you can pass along the CEO and take credit for it, where it's a 10-bagger. You ready? Now, this may already exist, so I'm going to show my ignorance, but I tweeted about it the other day and got zero responses, so I'm hopeful. I'm a cheap bastard. I say that lovingly as a compliment, as a diet-in-the-wool value guy. So my idea is I said, I don't understand why any of these sites that do the consignment or Stitch Fix could probably do it and say, but I want a monthly subscription, but with use like new clothes. So consignment, where I can just be like, real, real, here's my budget, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, and just send me some used clothes that are like new under my specific brands. What do you think? Good idea or terrible idea? I think that there's going to be a lot of innovation around those sorts of ideas. I mean, Rent the Runway has sort of moved their model in that direction. They started with just one-time events, and now I'm a consumer, and it's like I get a monthly subscription, and you get you choose as much as you want. And so that's still high end of the market, the brand sort of end of the market. But And again, I think they've had a little bit of trouble with the economics there. They keep tweaking the model, and so getting the economics to work. But again, I think that there's going to be a huge push into those sorts of things as people become more conscious about just their environmental footprint. And Katrina Lake at Stitch Fix, who I think is wonderful, and she just became executive chairman. Elizabeth Spaulding is the CEO, but she said now she's excited to spend more of her time on those sort of things, how tech meets ESG considerations and and how to push it forward. Well, very polite of you. I love when people, if you say, here's my idea, and they're like, um, <laughs> it's like, it's like a, you don't have to throw it under the bus, but I would totally be the first subscriber. We have a handful of, 
some of the early stage startups in this space that are kind of doing all sorts of ideas, Curtsy and FabFitFun. We just recorded a local, totally different business model. But I think there's a ton of opportunity still. Anyway, that's why I'm not running a consignment subscription service. But it's a great business. All right. What else you guys got? What else you looking into? You talk about as a parent, you got three kids. I have one, which is already enough. You say you preach about the benefits of failing. What does that mean? Like as you think about the portfolio and the last year sitting through that drawdown, having names that don't work out. How do you guys think about calling the herd? When is it time? Do you say, all right, we were wrong. Let's move on. Pick something else. I preach. I preach. Last weekend, my oldest is 10 and my son is eight and we finally got him on a swim team. And so 10 is old to be doing swim team for the first time. You know, we kind of knew we weren't going to do well and we were like, we're just going to go try it. And it's important to do stuff. We didn't do that well, but I really celebrated them for getting out there and trying and not doing well. And I said, it's a lot harder to do that. And so I think as an investor, you just have to get comfortable with that. I mean, the best investors out there, they have batting averages or, you know, they're right max, like 70% of the time. Some do it well and you're right much less. And and maybe it's more like a coin toss if the market's pretty efficient. And so you just have to be comfortable with being wrong. And I think trying to recognize when you're wrong quickly and have some sort of error correction mechanism in there. And so we really distinguish between the sort of drawdowns where there's volatility and you have some short-term losses, I think that's just a natural part of being an investor in the market. And if you can get comfort with that and remain focused on the long-term, that's really the way to drive outcomes over the long-term. If you look at what are the mistakes that people make when they try to do well or when they try to invest, I mean, the biggest one or one of the biggest ones out there is buying after big runs up at high prices and selling after big moves down. And so how do you correct that? What are some ways that you can correct that? I mean, no one, you know, I don't think anyone's stupid. No one intends to do that. There are good reasons why people are doing that. And it's because after names have had, or after stocks or markets have had big moves down, there's some good reason why. And there's some probably big risk out there. And there's some reason to question the future prospects for the market or the company. And so Having confidence, one, in what you're investing in helps that. And again, I get that through being close to the fundamentals of the companies. Sir John Templeton always talked about investing at the point of maximum pessimism. And and again, I think that's important to keep in mind. But yeah, we still make mistakes all the time. And we try to own those, learn from those. If we cannot make the same mistake twice, then that will be a win. Because a lot of times, you know, the risk is you make the same mistake more than once. So if I think back to COVID, I mean, it was just such a unique period because there's been plenty of times where you have drawdowns, but most of the time, the overall environment hasn't basically shifted so dramatically, essentially overnight. And so in that sort of environment, we had to re-underwrite all our names or mostly all our names to try to understand how will this impact this business? What does that mean for the future prospects? And What's the company's ability to survive? Because that was in question with names like airlines, where, again, you could hardly have imagined that overnight the business would go to zero, which is essentially what happened. And so, again, if I think back to what I would do differently, I think what I underestimated in COVID is when I started looking at the virus as the news started coming out, I was comparing it to the 1918 flu and other pandemics, and it didn't look as bad from a just purely the risk of the virus and the damage that it could do. And so I drew some conclusions that I shouldn't have drawn because I should have focused more on the behavior that was likely to happen from that. And we didn't really contemplate the idea of shutdowns. On the other hand, if I had recognized that earlier, I could have gotten defensive a little earlier, which would have been helpful. Um, On the other hand, a lot of people who did get defensive That wasn't the optimal call because, again, we had all the stimulus and things bounced back so dramatically. So that's just a reason why we don't time and invest based on the macro input. And we tend to focus more on the underlying business drivers values. You hit on a couple of topics that I think are as old as time challenges. You have a great phrase called we try to monetize volatility and looking at 
the challenge of something like Amazon, which you guys have held. So on one hand, you have the like, look, mentality, diamond hands, that's the phrase this year, a long-term holder, we have conviction, we're going to sit through the drawdowns. I mean, Amazon, my God, that's like the poster child. You've not only had 50% drawdowns, you had the like 90% plus one, the Amazon.bomb back in the day. Now it's a $2 trillion company or whatever it is. And but the wherewithal to sit through that and sustain. And on the flip side, the whole way down, the challenge of a investor is always like, what am I missing? Am I missing something? And this is actually a zero and I'm gonna have scrambled eggs all over my, my face. And it's no easy answers on that, but it seems to be usually to kind of dig harder and make sure you're not missing something. There's definitely no easy answers. We've been owners since I joined, Bill owned Amazon. So it was before that, since the IPO, he owned it. And we've owned it the whole time. It's been the single biggest contributor to our performance. And the single biggest mistake we've ever made is to continue to sell Amazon. And so if we had just never sold a share of Amazon, it would probably be bigger than the entire fund is. But again, the future is uncertain and no one knew Amazon. No one knew Amazon would end up doing what it did. And we didn't know that. We couldn't know that. You just can't know that. So again, we are always trying to understand the range of possible outcomes and what we think is most likely. And we talk about the right tail. If everything goes right, what could that mean for the business? And if everything goes wrong, what does that mean for the business? And what do we actually think is going to happen? I think just thinking through those things beforehand helps you recognize how things are evolving. Are we heading towards the best case, the worst case? And then really just continually comparing opportunities to one another and the opportunity set. I also think is helpful, but I agree 100%. We talk a lot about investing being part science, art and science. It's both. And probably when I was younger, I, I was more in the science camp. And the older and older I get, I just realize how much of an art it is because there's all these complicated things. And you can, just as you said, there's two sides to it and you know both, but when you're in the moment, you don't really know there's a big fog of uncertainty. And so making sense of the information is difficult. You have a writing where you're talking about Bill, someone asking him a question and it mirrors sort of a, a comment we make. We say it's the biggest compliment you can give someone, but asks, what is investment success? And you said you were surprised, but he, he responded, just survival, <laughs> you know, just existing. And the stat that I love to cite is over a 10 year horizon, half of all mutual funds disappear, which is an astonishing graveyard amount. You think about it. I mean, I think most people you would ask when they say like 10% is half go the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's why it's so important to just have that flexibility and adaptability. And I like that you tell people that you can't understand how fund until you know 10 or 20 years. It takes a long time to sort through whether what you're seeing is skill versus luck at the fund level, or is it the right company at the right time in a certain environment? Can they sustain it? I mean, the same with fund management. So again, focusing on what's enduring and what we know, and that's why being a value investor is so compelling to me. We know that the value of the business is the present value of the future free cash flows. I've never heard anyone debate that. All of the debate is around what will those cash flows be? And, you know, <laughs> and so if we knew, we could calculate the value. One of my favorite things about looking at managers like y'all uh, and not kind of what I'd say is the closet indexers is looking through the positions and always finding some names where I'm like, I've never heard of that company or that stock. I recognized a couple. I see you guys got a cruise line and a big car company that you've been adding. And would love to hear the thesis there, but would also love to hear, are there any names you think are sort of less well-known that the audience would scratch their head and be like, I've never even heard of that company. Any thoughts? We've invested in a number of new issuances and SPACs lately. What's the SPAC opportunity set look like to you guys? Is it a minefield? Is it a fertile garden of opportunity? I think you have to be really selective. And the pace of deals has obviously slowed down a lot. And I think that will lead to probably the better deals being able to get done. And it might get an aggregate a little better than it was when everyone could come and sorting through that. You just had to be very selective about what you did. I mean, we're at a point where 
we're not looking at a ton. It has to be a reason why we would even look at those at this point, given our view of the overall environment. But there's still, you know, a number of interesting things. And I think it's good for companies to have options in terms of how they come public. And I was talking to a company earlier today that we invested in, and they just saw it as one of their options in terms of how to, it's just a transaction and a vehicle for getting to the market. But I would say, you know, being really selective, we focus a lot on the people and the team and who are we partnering with here and what's the underlying business and do we have confidence, you know, they can put out these projections, which may be entirely unreasonable or unachievable. And so sorting through whether we think that those are actually achievable. But Metro Mile is one, and I don't know if you've heard of that one that we invested in, which I think is really interesting. Many of these facts, the ticker is mile on that one. It's early stage in the business. And so there's a lot of companies that are coming public, but again, they're coming earlier than we would have typically seen them come. And so that can create more risk going forward. What's interesting about MetroMile, again, the team is really excellent here. Dave Freeberg is the founder and he founded the climate company. And what I like about this company, unlike so many new issuances or so many growth companies, is they focused first on getting the economics right. And they didn't pursue growth until they did that. So MetroMile is a car insurance company. The model is very disruptive. So with telematics in the car, and then they've invested a lot on the back-end technology claims processing to automate a lot of it and improve fraud detection. And then they're selling insurance on a per-mile basis. The highest mileage drivers drive most of the losses, and then the lower mileage drivers are... So again, they're allowing people to pay based on how much they drive, which I think their average subscriber saves 40%. And they're only in eight states now, and they'll expand to 50 over the next couple of years. And so, again, when we did the work, Bill's first question to them, I think, or one of them was like, well, when are you going to be in Maryland? Uh, You know, I want this. And they're like, you're going to have to wait. The incumbents, they're going to have a tough time responding to this because they don't want to undercut their overall profit pool by lowering prices for the ones that are subsidizing the higher loss, higher mileage drivers. And so... Again, it's early stage. It's a really interesting company. I really like the team. And if we look at what we think it can earn, you know, just call it three years out, we think it's trading at 10 times sort of an operating profit number for the company. And so, and they actually have the unit economics there now, unlike a number of these other fintech insurance companies that have come to market. Well, you guys sort of have the barbell strategy on this sort of automotive world. You have the new uh, Metro Mile. You got Vroom. I was trying to buy a car on Vroom recently. This is probably an outlier, but it was during the pandemic. And I think I actually bought the car, but I think then like something happened in the steps to where it like someone else also bought it (laughs) and got it which is fine because I ended up getting a different car but my takeaway was that it's one of these experiences where you're like why would I ever go back to the way that it was before the world once you have an experience like this you're just like I can't fathom going and haggling at a bunch like it's just miserable miserable customer NPS anyway but you got Vroom and Metro Mile on one side, then you got the incumbent of all incumbents, GM. What's going on there? Is that a a similar thesis? Are they just gonna plug in across the lineup or what? Yeah, no, GM is really interesting. One of the areas of the market, again, it relates to ADT that I think is attractive overall is these classic value old companies where the market has them pegged as you know, at risk, declining, but there's something different going on there. And so GM has a lot of interesting assets in the electric vehicle autonomous space. They are investing aggressively. They just increased their investment in electric vehicles up to 35 billion, I think, over the next five years. And they have a whole suite of assets that I don't think gets any credit in this current market. The company trades at nine times this year's earnings, eight times next year's earnings. Paul Jacobson 
is the CFO and he was at Delta. We were longtime owners of Delta. He's really excellent. And he just joined GM, I think earlier this year. And so that's when we really started taking a closer look and they have a big investment in Cruise, which is the autonomous unit. They have their Ultium battery platform on the electric vehicle side. They have Brightdrop, which is electric commercial vehicles. And so if we just look at what are the values of each of the pieces, we can easily get a value that's roughly double where the current stock is at $59 a share. You know, the Morgan Stanley analyst, he feels pretty strongly and he nailed Tesla early on that they're going to start selling some of these pieces. And if they do that and they actually break it up, then that would highlight the value. I don't know if that will happen or not, but I know they have a lot of interesting assets in the company that I don't think are getting a lot of credit in this market. And Mary Barra's done an excellent job there. And I've been so impressed with how they've executed in this period that has with the semiconductor shortage and all the problems, and they've maintained and improved their expectations for what they think the business can do. So again, I think as electric vehicles grow, we just think it's not going to be a Tesla game. There's more and more players. There's getting involved in this space, and there's a lot of share to go around. And GM, some of their new vehicles, again, my analyst, who's a millennial, when she was doing work on it, and she saw the Cadillac Lyric, she's like, that car looks so cool. I would love to drive that car. And I mean, how many, you know, young millennials or younger people do you hear saying that about Cadillacs or GM brands? So again, I think there's a lot of upside in that stock, and it's not priced in at current levels. I'd cut you off on the any other names that are like a little more esoteric. Anything uh, else that, or, and you can also, this is a two-part question. You can answer that question, or you can answer something you guys sold recently and give us an example as to why you gave it the boot. There's lots of names. I can always talk about names that we own that I think are really attractive. I guess one of those names, and then we can talk about a sale if you want, but Green Thumb, I think, which is a cannabis company, it's not very well known. It trades in Canada and then also OTC, DTBIF is the ticker. That one I think is really interesting. And a lot of people can't invest there because they're not legal at the federal level. And there's all sorts of constraints on, especially institutions' ability to invest in the space. And there's also more uncertainty of exactly how it evolves at the federal level. So I think that that makes the valuation more attractive than, again, what you see in most of the growth stocks. But the Canadian companies, people got really excited about them a number of years ago, and it was a complete disaster, and they crashed. And so I think there's a fair amount of skepticism overall, but Green Thumb strategies really sound. So they're a multi-state operator, and they only operate in limited license states. So again, that preserves the economics and lowers the risk of a proliferation of supply that brings down the economics. And the capital allocation there and the team is just top-notch, first rate. And they think really sensibly about how to invest and grow the business and their owner operators. And so the companies, you continue every election to get more states approving adult use cannabis or medical use. The biggest market will be adult use. And so Green Thumbs in 12 states now, we just saw Virginia approve it and and New York and New Jersey. And again, because that source of revenue is so important for the states, you're going to continue to see this. So in Illinois now, which is their home state, the state makes more from cannabis revenues than alcohol revenues. That's most of the states where it happens. I mean, in Colorado, I think it crossed that Rubicon a couple of years ago. And there's nothing more that uh, legislators like than tax revenue. So it's like Thanos. It's saying like, I am inevitable. This is going to happen no matter what. And it's weird that it's taking this long. I My thesis last year was that both um, political parties were going to try to outwoke each other and jostle for who gets credit for clearing the path. But it's actually been a little slow to fruition. But it seems to be a question of when, not if. Yeah, I agree. And if you look out in just two years time, Green Thumbs trading at 20 times earnings, growing top line, you know, close to 60% this year. And again, I think you're just going to, they have so much opportunity that it's about what do we prioritize for our investments and for our growth. And so again, I think there's a really long runway here. And this is a company that 
again, if you want to be long-term and you want to compound capital, I think that this one's really attractive. You guys got a pretty eclectic portfolio. I mean, we've talked about cannabis. We talked about car companies. We talked about insurance, Amazon. When you guys look at sort of the Sam Bill Venn diagram, or you guys come together, what are the areas where you guys are, is it either in process or ideas? Where do you guys differ? What's kind of like, you're like, look, this is my deal. He doesn't agree or vice versa. Yeah, that's a great question. We do get that question, like, how are you different? I mean, I would start by saying we're more alike than different. That's why we've been able to work together this long. I think we're psychologically very similar and we like similar stuff. And he trained me and I learned from him and I was fortunate to do so. And so he always used to joke about him to get people when they're young and he can sort of imprint them. And so I was fully imprinted by him, but we do obviously differ from time to time. And when that might be, I guess a couple of things. One, Bill likes to joke that he's made all his money in growth stocks like Amazon, but he has this sort of fatal attraction to these deep value sort of dirt cheap four times earnings and he like just can't give it up. And I would say I'm definitely a value person as well, but in this market, certainly over the past decade, a lot of those sorts of names, they've been more risk than reward. And so I don't have that same... I want to think you can make the math work on the investment rationale 100% for that, even if, and I don't think if he thinks something's not going to work, he doesn't get excited about it. But on an expected value basis, if you look at how much can I make if I'm right relative to how much can I lose when I'm wrong, there are portfolios that can work really well by not having a majority of winners, but making enough on the winners when they're right, that that strategy can work. So you can make that argument. I'm probably more sensitive to the risk on those sort of things. If I see that, he says that I have a higher evidentiary threshold. So I want more evidence. Investors run the spectrum on how much evidence do you need to believe something. He would say, I have a higher evidentiary threshold. You know, it's funny when I used to do work and Bill would be like, go take a look at this name. And he'd be like, I think it looks like to me it's worth $200. And I'd go and I'd build out the whole model and I'd, you know, do the scenarios and I'd come back and I'd be like, it's worth I'm getting $200. Like, how do you do that? You know, it's just, yeah, it's funny. Start to wind down a little bit. You know, as you guys look to the horizon here, it's here in 2021. What are you excited about? What are you worried about? As you look to the future, give us a preview of some of your upcoming letters. I'm not going to make you do karaoke with your Billy Joel lyrics. By the way, for the younger listeners, Billy Joel is a singer songwriter, big piano man. What are you worried about? What are you excited about? I still think this is an attractive and interesting time for the market. Again, we've had this huge move off the lows from a year ago, giant move, but we're still pretty early in what is the strongest economic recovery we've seen in 40 years because of the stimulus and both fiscal and monetary. Again, we look at earnings expectations for companies have continued to come up. And I've seen some people who think that there's a lot more to go there. So again, we just think that you're in a unique environment. And again, we're on a bottoms-up basis finding a lot of interesting and attractive companies. If we look at the prior decade, we went through these risk-on, risk-off periods that were focused on growth scares. So we were kind of bordering on deflation. And anytime you know, there would be something that would cause people to question the overall macro environment, you'd get these sell-offs. One of the smartest macro people I follow, Michael Darda, MKM, he's pretty convinced that we'll have these scares going forward, but they'll be centered more around interest rates and interest rate increases. We've always invested in both growth compounders and then classic value. As the valuations on some of the growth growthier names have come up and they're trading like bond proxies in terms of when rates go up they're under pressure. And obviously, they're very sensitive to discount rates. So I think that that's a material risk over the coming years in terms of what does normalization and rates look like? And how does that flow through into equity prices, especially for the higher growth areas of the market? The portfolio has shifted more towards classic value names over time. Because of that, we still see significant upside overall. We calculate the upside in the portfolio. And so we still have, depending on the 
portfolio 65 to call it 85% upside to what we think it's worth. So we still think there's an attractive opportunity. And I wouldn't be surprised over the rest of this year or the next year to see a very strong market. And then a number of years ago, Bill was asked what he saw as the biggest risk in the market. This was before COVID. And he said, I think the risk is that the market goes up so much. The market just goes up a lot. And I was like, that's the risk, Bill. And I, I was kind of chuckled, but he said, bonds are really expensive now and you can't make money there. And if equities rise to a comparable level, then you won't be able to make money anywhere. And now fast forward where we are now, I think the likelihood of that happening is even greater. So you could be entering in the future a time where it becomes hard to make money. But in the near term, I still think as you said, even in the more euphoric areas of the market, you never know when that's going to end or what the end looks like. And Laszlo, lastly, I won't go on too much longer here, but Laszlo Brini is one of the best you know, market investors out there. And he publishes a newsletter and they've divided, much like Templeton, the market into time periods of the cycle. And they call them a little bit different things. But I think he's pointed out the last phase of the market before it peaks, that exuberance phase is the phase of his four where the market earns the highest returns. It's sort of the fastest increase in the market. And so, again, I think we could be in that period now, but given the economic outlook, I would expect, and companies and just the tailwinds they have, it to be a good time for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, we may have to reach back into your playbook for that. Uh, when you graduated that late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, despite these normal bear markets, we often tell people, some of the best companies get founded. Some of the best investments happen during the dark times, 2000, 2003, 08, very briefly last year. And who knows? 2020s. We'll see what happens. Sam, as you look back on your career thus far, still got a long way to go. What's been the most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? One that's just seared into your brain? You know, I guess one that I'm proud of our work on. Maybe I'll go that angle because I like to be an optimist is Peloton. And so we invested in that one on the IPO and right after the IPO. And it was highly controversial. And a lot of people who said, you know, this is a disaster. It's a fad. You know, there's no business there. It's completely overvalued. It's going away. I think we even had some people inside our own group who had that view. Part of what got me interested there, it's like old classic Peter Lynch buy what you know. My husband had asked for a Peloton the Christmas before. And I was like, are you kidding? I'm a value investor. You want me to buy this extremely expensive bike? But being the you know excellent wife that I am, I got one and I ended up using it way more than I thought I would. And they kept coming out with new content and it was really good. And I basically probably haven't gone to the gym since I bought the Peloton. And so listening to their view of how they thought they could displace a lot of the gym demand, you could look and see what that meant. And people, much like Apple earlier on, were confused, I think, about the hardware piece versus subscription piece, which is the real gem in the business. And then we exited that one. We did really well, but we actually exited it. And it's an excellent company. It's one I'd love to own forever, but we exited it late last year, early this year. Our view there was just, again, focused on expectations in the market. At that time, it looked like where if people priced it as a hardware fad when we bought it, by the time we exited it, it looked like it needed to achieve Apple-level growth for 20 years. And phones are highly addictive. People can't put them down. And it's the reverse for exercise. People have a hard time sustaining it. And so if you think rates might increase, again, that's going to be a headwind to these sorts of companies with high valuations. So that was one where, you know, I think, again, we could be wrong. It could continue up and we could sell too soon. That tends to be our, our biggest mistake that we make. But I think we had independent thinking and we sort of had a differentiated view and it worked out really well. Yeah. Love Peloton. We can find Sam at Growth and Value. That's her ticker name on Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> Do not find me. <laughs> yeah. I love Peloton too. There's a whole category for me. I mean, I'm a quant, so I half time, I don't even know what names are in our portfolios. But on the private side, that tends to be my approach is investing in companies that Peter Lynch that I love. And I just throw them into a, a shoebox or safe deposit box and forget about it because you can't sell the private companies. But there's certainly um, Peloton would have fit that category for me. 
Sam, this has been so fun. We'll have to have you back on and check on all the fun names you guys are thinking about in the coming months. But in the meantime, where do people go? They want to read your writing, see what you're up to. What's the best place to follow along? Thanks so much for having me, Meb. And if people want to follow what we're doing, we have a blog on MillerValue.com, www.MillerValue.com. And so we post pieces there at least every quarter. And that's a great place to find us. My last question, as someone who recently did an art podcast with a very famous art, the audio listeners won't be able to see this, but my favorite part about abstract art is I get to see what's behind you. And I don't know if this is either a $10 million painting or something done by your 10-year-old or something (laughs) in between, but that's the beauty of art. It's in the eye of the beholder or something in the middle. My kids do joke. This is a print. It's a Mondrian print. And I got it on Paragold, which is Wayfair, one of Wayfair's sites. But my kids like to joke. They all like to joke with me that they could have done this. And I said, then do it because you can do really well with three kids and the market. I like this art because it's very orderly, very much in order. So just have your kids be anonymous, create the art, call it an NFT. And there you go. College tuition <laughs> yeah. right there. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Nev. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.